Well, our text in Mark 9 is pretty similar to that one that he just read in Luke. But the one in Luke is a little more expansive. And uh, we'll draw a little bit on that in the course of it. So, Mark 9, 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, we ask that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word uh, to open our hearts to its truth. Please remove from us apathy, cynicism, callousness, or rebellion, so that we may be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts uh, for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. This we ask for the honor and glory of your dear Son, who is our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, since last week in Sunday school... Uh, one of our illustrations was that I stole Dan Ferg's Deep Purple CD. I thought I would start there <clears throat> with Deep Purple. Back in the early 70s, they had finally uh, kind of climbed and conquered America a second time. Uh, Machine Head was the big album, and Made in Japan was one of the, is one of the classic live albums from that particular period. And uh, they went into the studio, and the next album they released was called Who Do We Think We Are? It sort of reflects the fact that they had become, in, in some words, the biggest band in the world. But the album itself was underwhelming. The band itself had been exhausted from nonstop touring, and the band itself was fractured by infighting. I'm going to get back to that in a little bit. Pride. This whole section of of Mark's gospel seems to be ridden with pride. How does pride pop up in the, the lives of the disciples yet again? And we see this in verse 38. We're not sure exactly when this takes place or where this takes place. They they were in Capernaum when last uh, Mark talked about this. They were in the house that was the base of operations. But we don't know if they've moved on or they're still there. We, We have no idea. Mark doesn't think that's all that important. But what he does find important is that John said to him, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name. 
In other words, Jesus, we, we saw someone who was using your authority in order to remove demons from other people. What's interesting about this to me is that it's John. Who usually takes the role as the spokesperson for the whole group? Peter. This time, it's John. It's John, who is one of the big three, along with his brother and Peter. It's John, who, with his brother James, was nicknamed Sons of Thunder, as we see in chapter 3 of this particular gospel. This seems like a simple report about a guy. A simple report similar to what we, we saw in the video from Belize about ministry that was going on. It shouldn't surprise us, perhaps, that someone else was casting out demons because earlier in this gospel, Jesus had given that authority to cast out demons in his name, not simply to the 12, but also to the 72. And we don't know who all those 72 were. And we don't even know if the disciples knew the names of all 72 of those people. But this we do know, is that in some way this man must have been authorized by God in order to do this. Because when we fast forward to Acts 19, we find the seven sons of Sceva, who was a high priest. And they walked around, and this is in the, uh, the account having to do with Ephesus, a city that was filled with demonic activity. And so they tried to cast out demons by the name of Jesus. And the demon said to him, or them rather, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the result of that encounter was not the removal of the evil spirit, but the removal of the seven sons of Sceva as they were beaten nearly to death and ran away naked. It didn't quite turn out like they'd hoped. And so this text here of Acts 19 strips us of of some sort of notion that all they had to do was follow the right formula. This guy that John is talking about was not simply following the right formula. But he had received power under Jesus' authority in order to accomplish this work. In order to do this very thing. Sounds great, right? Until you read a little more. We tried to stop him not we cheered we tried to stop him they tried to shut him down they tried to hinder him they tried to prevent him they put up obstacles in his way not rejoicing at the advancement of the gospel not advancing at the the not rejoicing rather at the advancement of the kingdom not rejoicing at the advancement of God's mercy and compassion upon a person who has been enslaved by an evil spirit? Why? Why would they try to hinder this? Why would they try to stop this? Well, we see that John continues, 
because he was not following, the key word is us. That just flashes neon to me. Because they didn't say, not following you, Jesus. Not following us. This word following is the same one that we see elsewhere throughout this gospel in terms of discipleship. One who falls in line behind someone, becomes someone's disciple. But they, 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 they twisted this in the sense with the addition of, or he twisted, but he is speaking for them, with the idea of us. In other words, they're thinking, who does this guy think he is? Casting out demons when he's not part of us. Jesus might be ready to say, who do you think you are? In response to this. But he knows who they are, and he knows who he is, and he knows that he is the son of thunder. And as we saw when we looked at the Luke's account of this, it's followed immediately by the fact that there were people that did not receive them. And the reason they did not receive them is because Jesus was moving towards Jerusalem. Nonetheless, uh, John, who didn't understand why they didn't receive them, was so offended that they had not received Jesus properly that he wanted to call down fire from heaven upon those villages. Yeah. We think that Peter's the impetuous one. He is. But he's not the only impetuous one. Hmm. Who do the disciples think they are? This is not a new problem. It's not a problem that went away because it was limited to their time frame. But we see it's a consistent problem. It's not new because we, we saw it in Numbers 11, which Mark read. But what happened there is, of course, that... Uh, God had decided to multiply the ministry of Moses, and so he took some of the spirit that he had granted to Moses, and he gave it to 70 others so that those 70 could continue. And the mark that they had received that spirit initially was prophesying, well, there were two guys who were supposed to be there that weren't there. But God still worked. And so in the middle of the camp, these two guys begin to prophesy. And this young boy runs up and tells Joshua, and Joshua is offended at this. And I love Moses' response because he's not offended by it. He's like, why are you worried about my glory? Because Moses understands at this point, didn't always understand this, but it's not about Moses. And then he offers the words that I wish that all God's people had the Spirit. Little did he realize that soon they would. I meant to mention my little illustration of the iceberg. There's our iceberg. Remember what we've talked about with the iceberg. There's the, the sins we see that are above the water. Then there's the sins we don't see that drive them. And pride is the one we don't see. 
Pride is the, the thing that's hidden deepest in our hearts, just like most of this iceberg is hidden well beneath the water. But it produces all these things we see, just like this statement by John. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Pride produces so many problems. In fact, it was probably wounded pride on the part of these disciples that drove some of this. Because, remember, the big three come down from the mountain where they were with Jesus and they saw Moses and Elijah and what, what's going on? Well, you know, those other nine guys can't cast the demon out of the boy. Then they find out about this dude that they don't know who's successfully casting demons out of people. It's hard to avoid wounded pride at that moment. What I want us to grasp is the reality that pride divides people who belong together. It's not just rock bands. When Deep Purple was preparing to tour for the underwhelming album, Who Do We Think We Are?, Ian Gillen had already offered his resignation letter. The, bl- the band was blowing up because of pride in fighting. They're not the only band that did that. The police coming off the Synchronicity Tour, one of the, mo- the best-selling albums of the 80s. What did they do? They broke up. Van Halen, the most popular album, 1984. It's a very successful tour. That's the one that I went to. <laughs> David Lee Roth's pride blew up the band, and he left. It's not a new thing. It's not an old thing. It's an every time kind of thing. But it's not just rock bands. When we think about racism, what is it? It's pride. Uh, Whether it's the pride of white supremacy or the pride of black power, pride is the problem. Pride is what keeps people that Jesus tries to bring together apart. Because pride says this, I don't need you, whomever the you happens to be. It's not just racism. Let's get closer to home. Some of our Reformed brothers and sisters, I get frustrated when I hear this at GA, or I see this in one of the Facebook groups, Let me preface this by saying, I love Reformed theology. I believe Reformed theology is the best summary of the teaching of Scripture. But where I'm not going to go is the the mentality that some of some of my brothers and sisters have is that I that we have nothing to learn from anybody else. It blows my mind when people say that kind of stuff. Seriously? You have nothing to learn from your brothers and sisters? 
You Seriously, you think you've got it all together because your theology is the best theology. And I think it is the best theology. But I'm not foolish enough to think I've got it all together. And I can't learn from brothers and sisters who see things a little bit differently than me. Brothers and sisters, right? And so pride continually pulls people who belong together apart. Pride also drives people to the wrong kind of exclusivity, shall we say. What do I mean by that? Well, there is a good exclusivity. Uh, we see it in 1 Kings 18, which is uh, one of the texts for Friday for our community Bible reading. The, the people of Israel were, were limping back and forth between two opinions. Do we worship the Lord or do we worship Baal? And uh, the, the lesson of that particular chapter was, Baal can't do anything for you. Worship the Lord exclusively, only. We see that again popping up in John 14 when Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is exclusivistic. Salvation is found only in him. This is repeated by the apostles in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's not an alternative plan of salvation. There's not an alternative person who can save you. It's Jesus and only Jesus. But what cults do is say, you can only find Jesus with us. Brand new Christian? Back from winter break? Or Christmas break, depending on what you want to call it? Wandering the streets of Boston? Wandering the dormitories of Boston University? I don't know where to go. I'm new to this Jesus thing, but I do know that one of the girls on my floor has been inviting people to Bible study in the elevator because I've heard this nonstop. And so I say, hey, when's your Bible study? And so, yes, indeed, ladies, the very first Bible study I ever went to was a ladies Bible study. <laughs> I was soon directed to the men's study. Everything seemed to be fine and okay until the end of the semester when I was going home. Only an hour away. Not a big deal. Except the guy who was discipling me said that I had to go back to Boston on Sundays for worship. Excuse me? Well, there are no churches up there. I think I've seen plenty. Oh, but they don't believe. 
we're the only church in the area that believes. Their, their understanding of salvation was such that the, for the Boston Church of Christ, it was only through them. You could only be baptized through them, and you must be baptized by them in order to be saved. This exclusivistic thing that separates you from your families, that separates you from your friends so that they become everything to you and you can never leave because there is no salvation outside of that particular church. That's not the gospel, folks. It's Christ. There's no salvation outside of Christ. But that doesn't mean you have to be Presbyterian. It does mean you have to trust Christ. He'll even let some Lutherans in. Or maybe lapsed Lutherans. Baptists. Methodists. Nazarenes. If they're resting in Christ and Christ alone, they have salvation. But it's pride that drives people to say, we're the only ones who get it. And so pride divides the people of God. Well, does Jesus affirm this statement of John's and therefore the other disciples? Or does Jesus affirm what I'm calling the lone exorcist? We see what happens in verses 39 and 40. Remember, this whole section is really filled with the folly of the disciples, and this passage is ultimately no different because Jesus says, don't stop him. Now, though the ESV and the NASB use a different word from what we find in verse 38, it is, in fact, the same word. Why they changed it, I don't know. Don't hinder him. Don't prevent him. Don't stop him. Don't put obstacles in his way. In other words, what Jesus is doing is granting this man permission to continue in this ministry that he has undertaken. Why would Jesus support this unknown person? It gets back to what we saw in the account of Moses in Numbers 11. It gets back to the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus implies this. He doesn't spell it out necessarily, but we see, he says, no one who does a mighty work in my name, meaning with my authorization, will be able to speak evil of me. Now he throws, you know, soon thereafter speak evil of me. But nonetheless, there's no one who does mighty works like this would be able to speak evil of him. In other words, if this man is casting out demons, it is by the greater power of the Holy Spirit. It is not about his own power. It is not about some sort of right, right ritual that he's following. The Holy Spirit is at work. And if this man is acting as a representative of Jesus, 
that same Holy Spirit will not then lead him to curse Jesus. Paul says something similar to this in 1 Corinthians 12. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus be accursed. Now, we do recognize that Jesus had been cursed or bore the curse in order for our salvation. Paul would write that in Galatians chapter 3. But no one says Jesus will be accursed or still is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, Paul continued, except in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, what Jesus is getting at here, don't stop this man because he's working through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is intended to pull us together, not pull us apart. Jesus continues. For the one who is not against us is for us. In other words, he's not acting against us. So stop treating him as if he is. He's for us. He's on our side. He's on our team. He's one of us. You might not recognize him by face or by name, but nonetheless, he is one of us. Notice what Jesus does there. He starts with reminding them that it's about me. Because that person is not going to, occur, going to curse me, referring to Jesus. But now he brings the disciples back in. This person is with us. And the only reason that there's an us is because there's a Jesus, a me, who binds them together. We have a small problem. It's called Matthew 12. We have a verse that sounds to be in conflict. And the key word would be sounds or appears. They're not really in conflict, but nonetheless. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It sounds contradictory. But Mark Strauss, in talking about this, notes, here Jesus is opposing, sorry, the here would be Mark's account. Jesus is opposing partisanship and cliques. Those who are so focused on their own personal agendas and authority that they neglect God's greater kingdom purposes. And so these disciples here in Mark are so concerned about their personal glory uh, that they're trying to exclude somebody. The opposite proverb, Matthew 12, would apply to other circumstances, such as when people are sitting on the fence, okay? They're not gathering, they're not us, part of us. Such as when people are sitting on the fence, unwilling to commit to Jesus. Uh, these are the ones that we find in 1 Kings 18 that 
that Elijah mentions are limping back and forth between two gods. They can't decide which god they want to commit to. It's the god du jour, so to speak. Who's, who's going to bless me today? And they had to learn in a definitive fashion through this contest on Mount Carmel that the Lord, He is God. He alone is God. So stop trusting in other gods. This man that we find here that John is so upset about, he is for Jesus. He is for the disciples. He is gathering the people of God into the kingdom. He is not scattering them away from the kingdom. And this reminds us that we can affirm the ministries of others that represent Jesus. We can affirm the ministries of others that gather disciples to him, even if they don't look just like us. Maybe they worship a little differently. Maybe their understanding of the regulative principle of worship is a little different than our understanding of the regulative principle of worship. That's okay. Really. It should be. They're still part of us because they're still united to Jesus. They still have the Holy Spirit. They don't have to do everything like we do in order to be authentic Christians and authentic churches. And so Jesus draws us back by spirit-driven ministry. And if you haven't noticed by now, if you're one of those people who follows along with the notes, I've changed every point. <laughs> and I will continue to change every point. <sighs> Wasn't happy with it Thursday when I left the office. So if it's about Jesus, do we matter to him? Now, Remember, Jesus has subtly chastised them. He has gently rebuked them. Who here likes to be chastised or rebuked? I see so many hands. I'm astounded. What do we usually do when we get chastised or rebuked? If Amy were here, all I'd have to say is the Carl pose. One of the children in, that we had in the, the church in Florida, he would do this. It was so dramatic. I don't think he does it anymore because he's in his 20s now. But um, <coughs> maybe I should, have, I should ask his mother if he still does the pose. But we would get because he, the slightest word of rebuke or admonition the world is end. Everybody hates me. I might as well eat worms. But that's what we do. We may not actually do the pose, but inside our heart drops and we start the pity party. Or am I the only one who does this? I don't think so. You might hide it better than me because I tend to wear my emotions upon my sleeve, but I, I, I suspect that a lot of you are pretty good at the old pity party yourselves. 
the disciples are probably ready to cast, uh, to throw a big giant pity party right here. But I want you to recognize that Jesus is not trying to wreck them. He doesn't want them to have a pity party. He's not saying this to destroy them. He's not saying this to discourage them. He's saying this to open their eyes to more of what's going on. And so he continues to them and he says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. Now, some of us might be thinking, what's the connection here? How do we go from casting out demons to a cup of water? seems fairly insignificant, that good old cup of water. Well, just remember, they do live in a desert. They live in a desert that has no running water. They had their, uh, their version of water bottles. If they traveled, they would you know, bring wine skins or something similar to that and fill it with water before they leave. And hopefully it's sufficient to get them to the next place where they can get water. But as most of us have learned during life during COVID, uh, that the water fountain you were counting on at the airport is not functioning. The water fountain that maybe you were counting on at the gym has been closed for COVID because it's a super spreader. And so what he's talking about is someone who desperately needs water and is given water. But they're given water because they belong to Christ. Not simply disciples. Jesus doesn't say because you're my disciple. But Jesus says, because you belong to me. My name is on you. You're united to me. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 6 in the context of sexual immorality. He warns them against it. But he says, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. What was that price? The life of Jesus. You were a slave on the block, and Jesus bought you and set you free. You're now his. Freely in his service. And so this idea that, that, that we belong to Christ is rooted in what we call the atonement. It's rooted in the, the death of Jesus where we now belong to him. We're now his special possession, his treasure. And so while Jesus removes pride on the one hand, Jesus establishes dignity on the other. He's not wanting them to despair, but he wants them to know that their value is ultimately rooted in him, not themselves. But he also wants them to know that what is done to us is also done to him. 
In other words, this is very similar to what Jesus had done with them the other day when he brought the little child and said, whoever receives this child receives me and receives not only me, but the one who sent me. We see the same principle at work, as I mentioned last week, in Matthew 25 in the parable of the sheep and the goats. As you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see it as well in Acts 9. When the arrogant man Saul, who had been breathing murderous threats all around Judea, who had been finding Christians and tossing them in jail, hoping that they will receive the death penalty. When that Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my people, me. That is how strongly Jesus identifies with his people. It's similar to this. You mess with my wife, you mess with me. You mess with my kids. You mess with me. I have a covenantal relationship with them. I treasure them. I value them. And sometimes I have to tell the younger ones, you don't talk to your mother that way. Or you'll mess with me. Because I've sworn to protect that woman. Honor her and cherish her. And while I fail, (laughs) I'm not going to let my kids fail. (laughs) Anyway, that's the way Jesus is. You mess with them, you mess with him. So great is his love for his people. Well, this person that gives this cup of water, Jesus continues, will by no means lose his reward. In other words, God is not going to overlook that kindness. God is faithful. This is, this is uh, a, an allusion to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we see this function. Precisely because those who trust in Christ are now sons of Abraham. So the promise of Abraham is given to them. Those who bless you, God will bless. Those who curse you, God will curse. This displays the father's care for his household, for his children. Faith brings us into this family of God, and God is zealous for his family. 
just like I'm zealous for mine. And so Jesus draws us together because he bought us. And we belong to him. And so if we kind of take these three threads and we kind of bring them together and make a rope out of them, so to speak, it's through the gospel that Jesus pulls together what pride tries to divide. Through the gospel, Jesus pulls together those that pride tries to divide. So who do you think you are? Another way of thinking that would be, how does pride divide you from others at work, at church, at home, or at your community? Pride leads us to think that our way is the only way. And all that don't or won't do it our way are as lost as a needle in a haystack. But Jesus, Jesus draws us back together by giving us the same spirit who works in us to gather people into the kingdom. Jesus pulls us back together by buying us back with his blood to make us his children. So brothers and sisters, confess how pride ruins your life and be asking Jesus to put it back together again by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we've seen the pride of the disciples on display and they don't ask you (laughs) about the things they don't understand. They don't ask you for the help for the things that they can't do. They exclude others who are on the same team. Father, we confess that we can do those very same things We confess that we are full of pride and sin and so in need of your mercy. And we thank you that you are not a reluctant forgiver. We thank you that you are not a reluctant savior. We we thank you that you are not reluctant to bestow mercy and compassion. But rather you are gentle and lowly. Rather you rush to the needy like us. And so help us not to fear. Fear that will be forgotten, fear that will be overlooked, fear that will be cast aside, but rather... Help us to trust that we will be embraced, but not simply embraced, forgiven and transformed, pardoned and purified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.